This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. Today's recommendation is The Italian Renaissance, a lecture by Professor Kenneth Bartlett as part of the Great Courses series. If you enjoy this sort of thing, which if you're listening to this podcast, I assume that you do, then you will enjoy these lectures. Professor Bartlett covers more than just the art. He covers the politics and society of the Renaissance, giving you a much more complex understanding of the Renaissance and how its effects linger to this day. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the Renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 5, Far Beyond the Ordinary. Occasionally in history, there are figures that seem to rise out of nowhere. Solitary geniuses who change the world all on their own. You know, maybe an Isaac Newton or Napoleon. Perhaps Genghis Khan, somebody who's so far ahead of their time that they stand head and shoulders above the rest of society. What about the competition of geniuses? How does that affect the course of history? How does that push innovation? Let's look at somebody contemporary, like Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates. Would Steve Jobs and Bill Gates have been as innovative without the other? Sure, they were competing, but that competition drove their innovation and pushed them forward. What about the American auto industry? Would we have seen the same development had we not had the big three, Ford, GM, and Chrysler? I mean, these are questions we can't really know the answers to, but it's interesting to speculate. Would an individual have had as much effect on society had it not been for the work of others and this competition that drove their innovation? What about the idea of collaboration, where individuals, men of genius, bounce ideas off one another, borrowing each other's ideas, building upon each other's ideas? How does this affect innovation? Let's look at the founding of America. We have many men of intellect, some of them definitely geniuses, who bounce ideas off each other, argue with each other, but work towards a common goal and create this new system of government. It's really astonishing to look at what the Continental Congress was able to create. And yet, had Ben Franklin and James Madison been working in isolation, would they have been able to accomplish this change? It's highly unlikely. It was the collaboration and the work of others and this group, these men of genius, who pushed this idea forward. This is kind of what we have with Donatello. He's come up in our other episodes. He's a friend of Brunelleschi. He studied under Ghiberti. He's a friend of Masaccio. And he studied Giotto. And so we've touched on him briefly. 
And we know that he was influenced by all of these other artists, whether in competition, friendly or otherwise, or borrowing ideas, just like Masaccio borrowing the ideas of Brunelleschi. If we build upon our analogy, looking at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, let's imagine we know nothing about their personal lives. All we can do is judge their work and from their work gain some idea of their life. So imagine trying to determine what type of music Steve Jobs likes based off of iTunes or the Apple computer. I mean, it's almost impossible. Or trying to figure out what kind of man Bill Gates is by Microsoft Vista, right? This is something we can't even really do. But of course, with these figures, we have stories about their lives. Historians have written that some of them have even written about themselves and we know about their charitable work. But imagine we know nothing. Well, this is what we have with Donatello. We know almost nothing about his personal life. And the only thing we really have to go on is his artwork. So we're trying to judge the character of a man and piece together his life just by looking at his sculptures. We do have the accounts of Vasari, but again, just like with Giotto and some of the other figures we've studied, his writing is often inaccurate. And one of the problems that we have with Vasari is he doesn't include dates and he gets his chronology out of order. This is not really the concern of Vasari. He's looking more at the work of the artist. So what we're going to do is build a biography of Donatello using the one source we have, which is Vasari, and discuss his artwork. And we'll get into some of the controversies and different things related to interpretations of Donatello's artwork. I actually find it astonishing how little is written about him. Donatello is such a huge figure of the Renaissance and created a tremendous amount of artwork. So you would think there would be some amount of writing about him from the time. We don't even have receipt books for Donatello. In addition to Vasari, I will use some of the work of Lord Balcars, an English nobleman and art historian. But again, he's writing in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So he's almost 500 years removed from Donatello. And just like us, he's basing much of his knowledge on Vasari, as well as critiquing the work of Donatello. To give you an example of some of the issues with Vasari's account of Donatello, he actually gives Donatello's year of birth as 1403. Now, this is strange because when we read the section on Brunelleschi, he says that Donatello left for Rome with Brunelleschi, which would have happened somewhere between 1403 and 1405. So this would have made Donatello still an infant. Now, Lord Balcars, the English nobleman, an amateur art historian, actually estimates Donatello's birth would be around 1386. This is based on Declaration of Income from 1433, which says that Donatello was about 47 years old. So if we place his year of birth around 1386, that would make him about 19 or 20 when he goes to Rome, which makes a lot more sense. The artist we know as Donatello was born as Donato Niccolo di Beto Bardi. And his father was a member of the Wool Merchants Guild. Donatello, as you might have guessed, means Little Donato. And he was raised in the household of Roberto Martelli. And he would remain close to this family for most of his life and would complete various commissions for them. The Martellis were a prominent family in Florence. This is where Donatello would receive a classical education, though to what extent we really can't be sure. We do know that he was apprenticed to a goldsmith like Ghiberti and Brunelleschi before him, and he may have even been apprenticed to Ghiberti, either as a first apprenticeship or a later apprenticeship. When we discuss the competition between Ghiberti and Brunelleschi for the doors of the Baptistry of St. John, I had mentioned that Donatello was part of the competition. There seems to be a little bit of question about this, whether this was accurate or not. I have one source, 
Now, I've seen in some sources that he is listed as one of the competitors, but Lord Balcars believes that he might have been too young and not quite out of his apprenticeship in time for the competition. Either way, it does seem that he worked as an assistant for Ghiberti on the doors. So we estimate that he left for Rome with Brunelleschi somewhere around 1404, 1405. We're not really certain of the exact date. And he did take several trips to Rome. It's possible some of the stories get confused with each other. But while in Rome with Brunelleschi, either on this trip or a later trip, he joins Brunelleschi in studying and excavating the Roman ruins. And we mentioned how we believe Brunelleschi discovered his theory of perspective by surveying the foundations of the Roman ruins, and Donatello was there for all of this. There's a story that the two found a bag of gold coins, and this gave credence to the rumor that they were treasure hunters in Rome. And remember, we discussed how the common people of Rome were suspicious of Brunelleschi and Donatello and their activities in the Roman Forum. So while in Rome, Brunelleschi studies the Pantheon, which Donatello joins him for, and of course this is in preparation for the Dome. So so you kind of get an idea of how much Brunelleschi influenced Donatello in his early training. He's just out of his apprenticeship by maybe a few years. He's probably completed a few works and worked with Ghiberti. And now Brunelleschi is exposing him to all these new ideas and this renewed interest in classical art. So I think we can definitely say the seeds for Donatello's classicism or naturalism were planted during these trips to Rome with Brunelleschi. Upon returning to Florence, he assisted Ghiberti again, this time with the statues of the prophets for the north doors of the baptistry. By the time we get to 1415, we already begin to see elements of classical style in Donatello's work. During this time, he completed a large sculpture of St. Mark and one of St. John, which is the one we'll talk about. That would be St. John the Evangelist. The statue of St. John the Evangelist is a colossal work carved in marble, and it was completed for Florence Cathedral between 1408 and 1415. And this is where we see him break with the Gothic style. The figure of St. John is a rather large figure. He has large hands and a large head and very prominent features. This is to help counteract the effects of perspective. Now, you notice that St. John has his arm resting on a tablet or a book, This is an allusion to the fact that John the Evangelist is considered the author of the Gospel of John, as well as the book of Revelation. And as he sits there very stoically, there's a slight shift in his weight. And you can see the heavy robes falling upon his figure. Lord Balcars compares the statue of St. John with that of Michelangelo's Moses. Now, he says that St. John appears to be staring off into space while Moses has a direct conduit to God. And of course, many have theorized that Michelangelo's Moses is in fact inspired by the statue of St. John by Donatello. You see a similar handling of the carving and the heavy, massive figure of the colossal statue. Again, I said we'd have to look at Donatello primarily through his work, since we know very little about him. I will fill in with a few anecdotes here and there from Vasari, but before we go on, I would like to discuss Contrapposto. So, this is a Italian term. It just basically refers to a shifting of the figure, shifting of weight, and it's the counterbalance, basically. This is something developed by the Greeks, and it marks the beginning of the classical period in Greek art. In the early archaic phase of Greek sculpture, you see a very static pose with most of the figures, very much like the Egyptians. There probably is some influence of Egyptian art on early Greek art. With the beginning of the classical period, we see a shift in the weight, a more natural shift. You think about how a person stands, 
the weight's primarily on one leg. This creates an interlocking system of opposing angles that act as a counterbalance. And of course, the Romans, who are known for appropriating aspects of Greek art, adopt this in their art as well. And this is something that when Donatello's in Rome, studying Roman and Greek sculpture, he would observe this use of contrapposto. Now, if you look at the figure of the spear bearer by Polyclitus, this is a great example from early classical Greek art of this contrapposto and this balancing and twisting of the figure to create a very natural pose. And you see his weight on one foot while the others relax. His hips and shoulders oppose each other and they act as counterweights balancing the figure. I'll be sure to put examples of these along with Donatello's work so you could compare and really understand this idea of contrapposto. Now, the understanding of contrapposto was lost during the Middle Ages, and figures become very stiff and rigid again. In fact, you start to see this really during the late Roman period, particularly during the Tetrarchy. You'll see the emperors begin looking very rigid and stiff. But with Donatello, we begin to see the inklings of contrapposto with his figure of St. George. Now, St. George, if you're not familiar with him, is the legendary warrior who slayed the dragon. The dragon, of course, representing sin and Satan, and St. George is the Christ-like warrior. This, of course, makes him the perfect saint for knights, soldiers, and armorers. In fact, he's still the patron saint of England today. And the red cross on the white field is St. George's cross. The statue of St. George was commissioned by the Armorer's Guild for Orsan Michele. Now, Orsan Michele basically translates to the Garden of St. Michael or Square of St. Michael, Courtyard of St. Michael, something along those lines. And there used to be a monastery of St. Michael on that site. And when it was demolished, a church was built in the location of the courtyard. And this is where the name comes from. And of course, St. Michael is another warrior saint. He's one of God's archangels, and we'll talk more about him when we get to Michelangelo. When we look at the statue of St. George, we see a sloping shoulder, but he has one hand relaxed on a shield. If you look to the left, St. George's right hand, he's clenching his fist as if preparing for battle, and he's looking off into the distance. Now, you also see a slight turn of the head, and this helps to increase the naturalism, making St. George seem more like a real flesh-and-blood figure. Donatello continued his friendship with Brunelleschi. This is a friendship that would last for many, many years. Vasari gives us one of the few glimpses of Brunelleschi and Donatello's friendship. Now, whether the story is true or not, who knows? But it does give an idea of the competition and collaboration you see in Florence among these genius artists. In fact, if you haven't noticed already, almost everything related to art in Florence at this time is a competition. Whether it's the dome, the baptistry doors the very, very top of Florence Cathedral. Everything is a competition between artists, sometimes friends, sometimes not. So the story goes that Donatello finished the cross and, quoting Vasari here, and when he had finished this, thinking that he had made a very rare work, he showed it to Filippo Brunelleschi, who very much his friend, wishing to have his opinion. Filippo, whom the words of Donato had led him to suspect something much better. He smiled slightly upon seeing it. Donato, perceiving this, besought him by all the friendship between them to tell him his opinion. Whereupon Filippo, who was most obliging, replied that it appeared to him that Donato had placed a plowman on the cross and not a body like that of Jesus Christ, which was most delicate and in all its parts the most perfect human form that ever was born. 
Now, it's interesting because the Crucifix of Santa Croce is considered one of Donatello's most famous works and one of his most important. But this gives you a sense of the competition among artists, even among friends like Brunelleschi and Donatello. Of course, Donatello's crestfallen, and then his response to Brunelleschi is to challenge him to a contest, of course. Create your own version of the crucifix. So, the story goes that several weeks later, Brunelleschi invites Donatello to dinner. The two men meet at the market, and Brunelleschi tells Donatello, Well, why don't you head on back without me? I have to run some errands. And Donatello heads to Brunelleschi's home with the groceries. And Donatello walks in, and the first thing he sees is Brunelleschi's work hanging on the wall. And he drops the groceries. Obviously pleased with himself, Brunelleschi walks in behind him and asks Donatello with a laugh, What are we to have for dinner? Again, this story probably never happened, but it is an interesting tale that kind of gives us some idea of the friendly but competitive friendship between Donatello and Brunelleschi. Like Masaccio, Donatello builds on Brunelleschi's ideas and theories about perspective. And one of the things he's really well known for, and considered one of the masters, is low-relief sculpture. You'll find hundreds of Donatello relief sculptures all over Florence. In fact, there's so many, we're not going to talk about most of them. We'll deal with a few of the important ones. But if you think of it like a drawing, except for in relief, you kind of get an idea of the picture. And he would include linear perspective, just like Masaccio, and create space within his low-relief sculptures. He would also include aerial perspective. In the case of a low relief, it would be even lighter as it moves back. So it's raised less off of the surface. But one of the other interesting things he did, he took these ideas of perspective and applied them to freestanding sculptures. And you'll see he created the heads larger. And this is so that they would seem in proportion once placed on a pedestal. And many sculptors after Donatello would use this to account for the distortions created by perspective. So there's actually a famous incident, one of many, related by Vasari. And Donatello's asked to create a sculpture. The patrons see it, but they decide to place it lower than where it was originally intended. And once they see it unveiled at eye level, they're very unhappy with it. Partly because the head and the hands and the shape seem out of proportion. It seems incorrect. So Donatello begs them, give me a week, I'll finish this. And without ever really reworking it, he sneaks in, places it up where it should be, on its pedestal, covered, and then unveils it, and all the patrons believe that he's spent this entire week reworking the sculpture, not realizing that's the effect of perspective. And now the piece that they were so unhappy with looks perfectly correct and beautiful on its pedestal. It's possible that some of the panels created by Donatello in low relief and using linear perspective may have inspired Ghiberti's work on the Gates of Paradise because they predate Ghiberti's use of these effects in his work. One example is the Feast of Herod from 1427, which you'll find on the website. We're going to talk about one of Donatello's most important works and probably his most famous. And this is the David in bronze. He completed several statues of David. But this one is particularly different. His earlier handling of the subject, he created David fully clothed, not quite so dramatic. But his statue of David in bronze was actually the first freestanding nude statue since antiquity. Now, it's not the first nude statue, 
These were seen in various relief carvings since the Middle Ages. We actually have very little documentation on the David. We don't really know who commissioned it, but it's generally believed it was by Cosimo de' Medici. And this would have been prior to his exile that we talked about in episode one. Most likely, once Cosimo commissioned the piece, it was placed in the courtyard of the Villa Medici. Donatello fled to Rome once Cosimo was exiled, but he returned shortly after Cosimo's entry into Florence. After the Medici were exiled again in the late 15th century, the statue of David was moved to the Palazzo Publico, and now you can see it in the Bargello in Florence. Of course, this depicts David at his moment of triumph, just after killing Goliath. Now, a couple of interesting things we see, and I, I already mentioned that it was the first freestanding nude, but we see definite contrapposto. Unlike St. George, where we only see hints, here you see it to its full effect, just like you would see in ancient Greek sculpture. And the David is meant to be viewed from all sides, so that any angle works compositionally. And this is how Donatello intended his work, to be seen in the round from all four sides. Lord Balcars considers this a triumph of Donatello's understanding of anatomy. Now, it's not perfect. There are some small errors. One in particular is the connecting tissue between the ribs and the pectoral muscles. And Donatello was not quite sure how to work that out. You can sort of tell how the figures put together. But we also have to remember, he did not have the scientific understanding that Leonardo and Michelangelo did, both of whom studied the anatomy, not just artistically, but very much pioneering the science of anatomy. And Leonardo and Michelangelo were known for dissecting cadavers to understand the muscle and bone structure of the human figure. But the errors in anatomy by Donatello don't take away from its achievement at all, and most people probably won't even notice them. It's a very dramatic work that holds the attention of many even to this day. One subject I want to touch on when we discuss the David, you know, and I'm not trying to be controversial, that's not really the point of this program, but there's a lot of speculation about the meaning of the David and the fact that, quite honestly, it's very feminine. It's almost androgynous. And from certain angles, you might mistake this for a female nude. There's many reasons for this. One that's been put forth is, well, David was a child, and so Donatello's answer to creating this childlike boyish anatomy was to make it more feminine. But others have suggested that this hints at Donatello's homosexuality. Now, part of the problem with this is that we don't have a lot of documentation about, one, the David, or even Donatello's life. So we're drawing a conclusion based on our own background and experiences without having any real source documentation for Donatello. Now, some historians, like Paul Strathern, believe this is very obviously a representation of Donatello's homosexuality, and he suggests that Donatello was quite open about his homosexuality. In fact, during this time, calling someone a Florentine could be a slur, meaning that they are homosexual. Others suggest that this is less indicative of Donatello's sexuality and more of the general attitudes of Florence during the early 15th century. However, we have to remember sodomy was still a crime, and it could still be punished by death, even in Florence. In fact, there were several major crackdowns in the years prior to Donatello creating this bronze. So, it would have been quite dangerous for him to suggest, one, that he was a homosexual, or alluding to homosexual tendencies within Florentine society. 
One interesting critique from Lord Balcars, writing in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, is that he believes this is just an example of humanism influenced by Greek art. It's not particularly represent homosexuality, but rather this love for all things Greek that was in vogue in Florence during the time. So here's the main problem with any side of this argument. We have no documentation. Absolutely none. There are no court cases. There's no charges, no diaries. There's nothing we can point to that says Donatello was homosexual or that he wasn't. And frankly, I'm not quite sure there's enough evidence to point us in either direction. And look, Donatello may or may not be homosexual. My point more is that we just don't know. We don't have any documentation. And I think there's a real risk in putting in our own modern preconceived notions without any kind of documentation or any idea of what's in the artist's own mind. So I think it's better to be cautious before jumping to conclusions based on a piece of art. Donatello continued to work through Florence, and Vasari says he never turned down a job. We'd already discussed how many uh, relief sculptures existed throughout Florence, and Vasari says that Donatello would take every job, no matter how small, and this is why we have such a tremendous output of work from this artist. We're going to actually fast forward about 25 years and discuss the first equestrian statue since the time of the Romans. This would be the Gata Malata. It was first begun in 1443, but not completed until 1450. It's a giant equestrian statue of Erasmo. He's a famous mercenary of Venice from Padua. Now, his name means honey cat or sweet cat. And Padua was granted the honor as a protectorate of Venice. There were no existing models of colossal horses except for the statue of Marcus Aurelius. Several of the ones we're familiar with today from antiquity had not yet been unearthed. So he would actually finish the statue three years early. Now when does that ever happen, particularly for a government project? When it was finished, the statue was placed in the Piazza di San Antonio, where you can still see it to this day. Donatello's final days were spent in Florence in the Basilica of San Lorenzo. He had worked here years earlier with his friend Brunelleschi, and he had worked on the bronze doors of the Sacristi, which was designed by Brunelleschi. His final works were the reliefs for two bronze pulpits for the church. Now, as we had already discussed, he was a master at low relief. This is what Donatello was known for during his day despite being most famous now for either the David or his colossal statues. But since Donatello was advanced in age, he would require students to help him complete this final commission. In fact, it wouldn't be finally completed until after his death. Of course, Donatello would be a huge influence on later generations of sculptors, particularly Michelangelo, and he's considered to be the greatest sculptor other than Michelangelo. Another tale by Fasari says that when Cosimo de' Medici was on his deathbed, he granted Donatello an estate just outside of Florence. He made him a noble. This, however, presented a problem for the artist. Being a noble, he was expected to handle the problems of the peasants surrounding his lands. And he becomes so frustrated by the demands of the peasants on his land that he requests the land actually be returned to the Medicis. Piero, Cosimo's son, apparently laughs at this, and enjoys listening to Donatello go on and on about the difficulties of maintaining these lands and this and that request from the peasants. 
So it's agreed that the Medici will take back the land and he will give Donatello a stipend that is equivalent or more to what Donatello received in the land grant. And this way he could live out his days in Florence in a small apartment while still having the time to create his art. Donatello would die in 1466 and he would be buried in San Lorenzo near his old friend and patron Cosimo de' Medici. Join us next week as we explore the life of Paolo Uccello, an artist who becomes so obsessed with perspective that he forgets all else and closes himself off from the world. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support the show, there are a couple ways you can do this. Please be sure to visit our sponsors through the sponsor links on therenaissancepodcast.com. Of course, you may also support the show by using Audible. Just click on the Audible link on the website or visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. If you would rather, you can buy me a cup of coffee and do that too. You may make a small donation through the donation link on the website. Just visit the renaissancepodcast.com for more details. And finally, be sure to share us with your friends and like us on Facebook. 